0: Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. Later on in the programme, I will be talking to Anya Lynch from uh, Birdwatch Ireland Tipperary branch. I will also be talking to John Butler from Bookworm in Thurlis. And my final guest this morning will be Zoe Kavanagh from the National Dairy Council. My first guest this morning is Bernadette Bennett from Chagas, and we're going to talk about soil sampling and maybe testing silage as well. Good morning, Bernadette, and thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning, Jim. How
0: are you? I'm in great form. Nice, good, cold weather we're having at the moment.
1: Absolutely,
0: it is. I I was travelling yesterday, and believe it or not, I couldn't believe it, there were still some animals out, particularly younger animals out. Mind you, it's rough weather for them. But anyway, it
1: shows the great, the great growth we've gotten, doesn't it? it? shows the great growth that we've gotten there at the back y- end.
0: Yeah, it was fabulous. You want to talk first of all about something, soil sampling. Yeah, OK, OK, we'll take the soil yeah. first. Yeah,
1: we'll take the soil first just because there's a little bit of a change in the regulations. So I suppose at the moment, Jim, with the ground as hard as it is, people will be uh, not too uh, eager to get out and soil sample. So we will have to wait until things defrost a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I suppose the change that is coming is from next year, Jim, We, if we are stocked at over 130 kilos of nitrogen per hectare, we will have to soil sample. Do you know, if you're talking that a, a suckler cow there is 65 kilos of nitrogen, mm-hmm. it means that if you have two suckler cows across one hectare, so one hectare is is two and a half acres, so mm-hmm. two suckler cows across two and a half acres, you're going to have to sample your soil if you want to buy pea fertiliser. So there's right. a lot of farmers out there, Jim, that are that maybe haven't in the past been required to soil sample but now will have to because if you take it, there's a lot of farmers out there with more than two two cows for every two and a half acres.
0: So a cow to the acre is okay?
1: Well, a cow to the acre would be, would be two and a half cows then on two and a half acres. So if you're at a cow to the acre, you would have to do a soil sample.
2: Right, okay,
1: so what you're talking there is is one soil sample for up to about five hectares, so mm-hmm. call it one soil sample for every ten acres, roughly right, one soil okay. sample for every for up to a maximum of ten acres. Right. Um, and this is if you want to buy chemical pea next year. Mm-hmm. So all tillage farmers as well are going to have to are going to have to soil sample as well. so it's just an important change that has come. So if you're Mm -hmm. over 130 kilos of nitrogen per hectare, you're going to need to take soil samples. And the other change I suppose that's coming then when we're talking about changes to regulations is the slurry spreading and use of low emission slurry spreading. So from 2023 onwards, if you're stacked at over 150 kilos of nitrogen per hectare, you're going to have to use low emission slurry spreading. So you're talking about your trailing shoe or your injectors and that type of, of thing. And from 2025, so the rule is coming that from 2025, if you're over 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. So really, even if you're if you're more lowly stocked, you're going to have to get into the mindset that you're going to have to. Any slurry that that needs to be spread is going to have to be spread with low emission slurry spreading equipment.
0: You mentioned tillage farmers are going to have to test soil test. Yes. Uh, What's the rationale there?
1: I suppose, look, to grow any crop, Jim, it's important that, you know, we're we're being as efficient as we can. Mm-hmm. So when we know what, what soil results we have and we know what is in our ground, we're doing a much more accurate spreading of fertiliser, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just spreading fertiliser because that's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to, it's to actually properly target the proper fertiliser for the ground that we have or the soil type that we have.
0: OK, and you say it's all built around having the P levels right.
1: Well, this is to to buy P, but it, it it's yeah. a it's a factor of things. You need to have your nitrogen, your your P's, your 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 K's, your P, your phosphorus, and your potassiums, as well as your sulfurs and your lime. Mm-hmm. Correct. So it's just checking what way your your pH is, what way your your soil fertility is, and then targeting fertiliser to that accordingly, rather than just spreading. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because so, we've always spread so, something.
0: So let's let's go back a bit now. You have over. Two cows uh, on a hectare, but yes, yep. having tested the soil and you find that your P levels are low, that allows yes. you to go out then and buy it.
1: Exactly, uh, exactly. So you can it. get a fertilizer. Yeah, you yeah. can get a fertilizer plan done based on those soil samples, but. and you can check what how much you need to buy, because with fertilizer price the way it is, you don't want to be buying a product that you don't need to be to be purchasing.
0: That's the uh, debate about soil testing. So you're recommending that farmers, as soon as the weather is right, and in other words, uh, we're not walking on hard ground.
1: Ground, yeah, because you want to get a good core of soil yeah. into your box. You want twenty soil cores for for your. Um, say up to 10 acres but you need your core to be to be good and deep you don't want to be just taking it off the top of the
0: ground of course and you need to take it
1: you want to get down 10 centimeters if you can
0: yeah and and you need to take it from many different parts of that same field or paddock and farmers get out and do that as quick as they can then we're coming to okay not every farmer in the country at the moment is feeding silage a lot of them probably don't know the quality they have
1: They don't know the quality they have. Exactly, Jim. And it's so important. You know, if you know the quality I have this year, you can maybe improve on it for next year. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you've taken, if you take your silage test, and again, you're talking that you're, you know, you might have a 500 ton pit, but you're only taking 500 kilos Mm. or you're only taking half a kilo of of silage out to get tested as a sample. Mm. Yes. So look, it's a very, very small sample you're getting. So again, you have to go for a number of sections through the pit um mix them all together and then get them sent to a lab as quickly as you can don't leave it sitting around you know yeah so but like yes if you take your sample you're much more likely to know what's in the sample you can know what you need to be feeding to whatever animals you have and with feed with with, with meal the price that it is you don't want to be over feeding meal so i suppose the thing we'd be saying is take your sample this year. And even if you you know, you know get your results, have a good look at your results and see how you can pr- improve your silage samples for next year.
0: Right. And of course, as well as improving for next year, depending on the results you get back, you might be able to use less concentrates than you have been using it. So that's one of the incentives to go out, even though you haven't tested up to now, is to go out and do it.
1: Absolutely. Exactly. And like for as well as that, you can get mineral analysis done. Mm-hmm. So for cows that are calving down, for dairy cows calving, you can get a proper look at what mineral you need to buy. I hear very often, Jim, people saying, oh, I have no problem with um, milk fever or with health cleanings or things like this. And then when you ask them, they might have six or seven cases out of 100 cows, which means they do have a big problem. So... Really, when you have a hundred dairy cows, you should only really have one case of milk fever each year. If you're having any more than that, you have a problem, and you need to look at your silage, see what minerals are in your silage, see what dry cow mineral you're using, and mm-hmm. get a proper a proper screen and done. But,
2: mm-hmm.
1: You know, because it's a huge financial problem on farms. We're trying to get cows back in calf very quickly, so if they're if they're knocked off at the start of their their calving mm-hmm. down, it's going to follow through the lactation.
0: Okay, we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for that this morning, Bernadette. And may I, on behalf of myself and the listeners, wish you and all your colleagues in Chagas a very happy Christmas.
1: Thank you very much, Jim. Likewise.
0: Listeners, my next guest this morning, there are two, are Anya Lynch, who is with Boardwatch Ireland Tipperary Branch and a member. And I also have Tom Gallagher with me as well. And you all know... Tom and Anya from this program down to the years anyway. And the reason they're with me is that the the Tipperary Barn Owls report for 2022 has landed in my hand here uh, last Sunday morning. And we're going to talk about the report. Uh, Anya, you're welcome.
3: Thank you, Jim. Great to be here this morning.
0: Great to have you dropping in here to my house (laughs) on a very, very cold day. But anyway, Anya, uh, how important are reports like this?
3: Uh, They they provide information to us, Jim, on how um, birds like the barn owl um, are faring in our countryside. Um, Myself and Tom and Liam Crow um, have been carrying out a project on barn owls predominantly around the Thurlis area, but we have extended further out from Tipperary as well. And um, this report gives us an insight into the health and the status um, of what is a red listed bird of conservation concern in Ireland due to low population numbers and the impact um, us humans have had on them uh, down through the centuries.
0: The population is growing, I believe.
3: That's correct, Jim. Yes, it is growing. And um, that's due in part to a new member of our small mammal fauna, which is the greater white-toothed shrew, which was discovered in Tipperary when they went looking at barn owl pellets. So um, as some people may know, but for those who don't, Barnells when they catch a prey they eat only small mammals really mm-hmm. sometimes birds sometimes frogs but they swallow it whole and um, it sits in the stomach um, and then they can't digest the hair um, and the fur and the bones and they cough that back up in a thumb sized pellet and that's what we find at our Barnell roost site or nest site. And if we look at that pellet, we can identify the different skulls, the different jaw bones, um, other bones from the skeletons. And we can determine what species of small mammal they have eaten. So back in 2010, uh, a number of barn owl pellets were collected from Nessite out near Dundrum in Mm -hmm. County Tipperary. They got sent up to uh, David Tosh in Queen's University. And David went through the pellets and went, oh, I don't recognise these jaw bones. That's not from any small mammal We have in the Irish fauna. They realised after a bit of research that this was the greater white toothed shrew, um, which they believe possibly came in via the stud farms or through the tree nursery trade. Um, They're commensal. They tend to get together in little groups in the winter. Mm -hmm. So they may have come in in a hibernation ball um, like that. Accidental introduction. Um, But it has been of massive benefit to our birds of prey. They're quite chunky and they're very noisy, easy to catch. Um, And they seem, you know, because shrews um, have such high metabolisms, they feed all the time. So they're active all the time. So um, they're very much now a massive part of the barn owl prey diet um, that we see here, particularly in Tipperary.
0: Right. And then how many sites are you, uh, shall we say, doing research on in County Tipperary?
3: Oh, at, at this stage, we'd have well over 150 sites oh. in Tipperary. Um, they're not all monitored by us. Mm-hmm. Um, there is other sites down in South Tip that are monitored there by um, John Lusby as well. But not all sites are occupied every year. But um, we have some sites that we know have been occupied now for at least 25 years. Some sites have only recently become occupied. And, um, you know, they nest in a variety of sites uh, they're a cavity nester, so they need a hole to go into. So you're talking about a hole in a tree um, or a hole in an old stone barn, which we know are very few and far between these days. Or they might go down a chimney of an old um, uh, building, you know, or into a castle or something like that. But what they do also really like and do extremely well in is in a barn owl box. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have focused on. Uh, the vast majority of the sites that we would look at now would be barn boxes. They're very happy in them, and they seem to be able to raise uh, a brood of chicks as easy as they would in a natural site.
0: Now you talk, you spoke about the sh- shrew. Uh, where are they found? Are they found in hedges, or are they found in middle of farmyards, or where can?
3: Yeah, they're yeah, get they're predominantly out in the countryside, but um, obviously they need a habitat to live mm. in, like all animals. So you're going to find them along your hedgerows or in rough grassland. Um, improved agricultural pasture land doesn't really provide any kind of habitat for mm. most wild animals. So it's going to be the hedgerows um, and those wild grass areas. Um, so it's rightly important, you know, for um, our hedgerow ecosystems that the hedgerows are allowed to flower and to fruit because the barn owl is a top predator, top of the food chain. But the animals that they feed on require um, either other animals or seeds um, you know mm-hmm. to feed upon. So we really need all that interconnectedness in that food chain to be there in order to provide food for everything within the food chain. So the hedgerows are very important. Vitally important. Um, You know, their management is so important for wildlife. You know, I I would encourage any landowner out there to take stock of your hedgerows, to walk them in the springtime. Note which hedgerows aren't flowering and make sure that, you know, if you can at all, they're not cut that year, that they're let go for a couple of years without cutting, that you manage your hedgerows on a rotation basis. Obviously, you may need to breast behind an electric fence to keep your livestock in, But it's vitally important that our hedgerows provide food and shelter for our wild animals. And we do know that one of the biggest problems facing um, biodiversity and, you know, with the Citizens Assembly on biodiversity there recently been in the news um, and, you know, so much more people talking about nature. We do know that starvation is a massive problem for our wildlife. And it's because we're not letting these wild habitats produce the food that these animals need to survive.
0: OK, we'll look at it on you, thanks. We'll have a chat now with Tom. Grace. Tom, following on there from what Anne has said, you know, how does the barn owl catch his prey?
4: Well, you see, the barn owl is a very effective hunter and it's equipped uh, to do that. Number one, it has silent flight. The outer primary feather has a comb and when it flaps its wings, the wind doesn't make any sound as it leaves the wing. The tails of all the feathers then are um, tattered. They mm-hmm. look tattered. And that also prevents any sound being made while the owl is flapping its wings. So first of all, it has silent flight. Then how does it catch the prey? Its sight. Its sight is two and a half times better than ours in the dark. In the dark, And then it's, it has two discs on its face. Mm-hmm. And these discs have strong feathers in them. And they direct sound to their ears, and they, and it can actually they say it, it can actually hear a mouse's heartbeat thirty feet away, because its hearing is ten times better than ours, and its hearing does not deteriorate with age. Right.
0: But then, how does it catch?
4: They catch then when they hear the uh, when they hear the prey. Mm-hmm. If they, he, if they may see it, but often more often than not, it's hearing. Mm-hmm. So it, they come with their claws, with their yeah. big talons, they're needle sharp, mm-hmm. and they just come feet first down, and it's like a large cage, and they just ensnare the prey in their talons, yeah. and that's the end of it. It's dead immediately. Mm-hmm. And then if they're carrying it back to the young in the nest, they put it in their beak as they fly. But then they, if they eat it themselves, they swallow it whole, mm-hmm. uh, head first, uh, for obvious reasons. The claws won't be catching in the throat as it goes down. And that's how we find out, you see, that, that they're, what they're eating. Mm-hmm. Because after two hours or so, they cough up a pellet, and in the pellet are the that's bones that's and that. things, as that's Anya, that's that's as that's Anya said.
0: Now, in, your, in, in the report, there are some beautiful photographs of these birds.
4: Yes, yes.
0: Now, normally speaking, the normal person, you know, listening to us this morning will never see these birds.
4: Probably not, because they fly at night. Mm -hmm. But if you're driving along in a car, and it's dark night, and in the headlights you see a white bird flying over, you can be almost 100% certain that's a barn owl. They are the most gracious flyers of all. They're poetry in motion when they're flying. They're beautiful birds. And uh, anybody... Who has, them or who has them for the first time in there, they're enthralled by these mm-hmm. and they become enthusiastic and they just love them. But, I mean, they are extremely effective hunters and we had one farmer who had bay after bay of livestock food in his sheds and when the barn owls moved in, he told us he did not have to lay any poison since they had moved in. They are most effective in vermin control.
0: Anya, following on there from Tom, one thing has struck me, you know, uh, you have to keep track of these birds. So I presume you have some sort of a tracking device. And is it a ring on their legs or what is it?
3: Yeah, so um, I'm what's called a a licensed uh, ringer. So I've been trained and can inspect um, nest sites. Uh, remove the chicks from the nest sites and what we do is we put an individual ring onto uh, the chicks legs Um we weigh them we measure them and we pop them back into the nest site this is done when the adults are no longer roosting with the chicks because they stop roosting with the chicks once they get to be about 20 days old so yeah and from that information I know this year alone we uh, ringed chicks um, near Temple Moor and unfortunately one of those chicks then was found dead on a road um, outside of Temple Tui, but we knew exactly how old that bird mm. was and where it had come from. Some of my other uh, colleagues who ring barn owls across the, um, the country, they ringed a nest a brood of three chicks down in um, Kerry back in 2020 and all three of those chicks have now turned up dead on roads around Ireland, so we know the fate of that entire brood um, and this work you know, has been made possible thanks to um, Roisin uh, O'Grady there with Tipperary um, County Council, the heritage officer. Liam Crow, as I said earlier, is an integral part of the team. He makes the boxes for us. Um, Roisin gave us a grant which helped make boxes um And currently now, um, you know, we're still making boxes. Uh, We take donations for the box um, and we will give people a hand, put them up or they can put them up themselves. And then all we ask is that we come back and we monitor that nest box the following year and every other year going forward. Or they can get involved and tell us if they've seen any activity at a nest box. And once we have chicks there, we can go ring the chicks and they become part of the nest box project for Barnells.
0: Okay, thank you ever so much and a big happy Christmas you, Anya, and to you,
3: John. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, and same to you.
0: Listeners, during the week, I dropped in to Bookworm and Thurless and met John Butler, the owner of the shop, and we're going to talk about Best Reads for Christmas with John. John, I'm in here in a lovely cold Monday morning <laughs> with you. Uh, not my usual lovely warm studio to sit down and talk to somebody in, but look at uh, books still... You know, people still buy books, aren't they?
5: They do. Yeah, they are, Jim. Thanks be to God, because uh, I suppose we wouldn't be here um, if they didn't. And and we always appreciate the support that we get locally and and from across the the county and that. And uh, books do make a great gift, you know, at this time of year. Books are a great gift any time of year for birthdays or, or whatever kind of occasion it might be. But I think particularly at Christmas, you know, it's the ideal gift for anybody of any age. Uh, People are often kind of racking their brains trying to think what they'll buy for somebody. And the great thing about a book is, you know, you can pick any subject under the sun and you'll find a book on it. And you don't necessarily know, have to know exactly what the person that you're buying for is interested in or is, is into because... You know, if you talk to a bookseller in a shop, they're usually able to recommend a good book and uh, something that might mightn't be, be, be known, you know, that you mightn't have thought of. You know, we all, you, you'll hear of all the big authors all the time, but there's lots and lots of books on practically every subject under the sun. So, um, yeah, no, we think books make the ideal Christmas gift. OK, you uh, said that you
0: could pick out a book for anybody. Mm. OK, somebody comes into you today, tomorrow or between now and Christmas what would you recommend? And we'd go through a, a list of books, okay. I presume. Yeah, I, what, yeah. I'll,
5: do, what I, I'll do is uh, pick out some um, maybe books of adult interest yeah. and then we'll talk about children's books maybe after that. Yeah. And the great thing about books in this country, we have so many great authors and publishers. You know, the Irish mm-hmm. book scene is very strong. And again, this year, there's some beautiful books. And just looking at a few we have there out in front of us, uh, John Creedon, who is well known from his radio work, he has produced a beautiful book called The Irish Folklore Treasury, which is based on the Folklore, um, the, the Children's Folklore Commission, that the collection that was done over the, years and years ago, and where they asked children, this is back in the 30s and 40s, they asked children to write down stories from their grandparents or an older neighbour or friend, and these are recorded in the Folklore Commission. So John has taken stories from this and produced them in this lovely book, which has, you know, there's stories from all over the country with nice illustrations throughout the book. And it's a book you could give anybody, man or woman of practically any age. Right. Because, yeah. you know, older people would be able to relate to some of the stories in it. And then younger people, you know, might open their eyes to see what life was like 100 years ago or more. So that's definitely one, one I'd recommend at the Irish Folklore Treasury something which is not a million miles away from that i suppose is Mankhán magan's new book L- listen to the, the land speak he wrote one called uh, 32 World words for field last year which was more about language and and how the irish language has so many different expressions and words and phrases for dif- with, you know for different things in the in in, mm-hmm. in uh, around us but this one is more about the myth and legend in the landscape so he's talking about Trees and ancient trees and ancient bogs and ancient and the great rivers of Ireland, and how you know the great myths and legends are woven into the landscape and the history of the landscape. It's a really interesting book, and again, you could give it to anyone, um, you know, anyone who has an interest in, in history or myth and legend. And again, age wouldn't matter, you know, you could give it to, to quite a young person or somebody older. So, listen to the land speak again, a beautifully produced little book,
0: okay. And you have. An Irish-Atlantic rainforest here.
5: Yes, th- this kind of, I suppose, com- brings us into the area of, of climate change and and um, ecological damage and you know things that are very topical at the moment and things that are happening around us. And Owen Dalton, who wrote this book uh, a number of years ago, he moved from Dublin, having lived abroad for a number of years, and bought a small holding down in West Cork and decided to rewild it. So he decided to let it come mm-hmm. back to nature. And really try and see what would happen and how we could learn from it. And he has done that and he's produced this book about his experience with this. It's, again, it's a fabulous book. Anyone with an interest in whether it's farming or landscape or rewilding or climate, it's a lovely book and very interesting, very easy to read. So he goes into how he did it, his own experience of it, and I'd have to recommend it. And some lovely pictures in it as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, from yeah. his own, the, the the landscape down in West Cork. Okay, there.
0: you have a book here, Tommy Gorman, a man I met back in 1989 in Brussels, of all places.
5: Yes, Tommy was out there mm-hmm. as the RT correspondent for a number of years. Um, we t- talk about a few biographies here and autobiographies. So this is Tommy's own story, covering his time in, um, when he started out as a journalist in Sligo and then going to Brussels mm-hmm. for years and then Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. RT correspondent. And it's a very personal story. You know, it's yeah. not you, you might expect that this is you know a book about a journalist and, and the North and Brussels, which would be sound a bit dry. But it's actually a very personal story. He had his battle with illness. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that great. is really interesting because he 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 had to go to Sweden for treatment. Uh, the treatment for his type of cancer yeah. wasn't available in Ireland. But now, because of him, it is available in Ireland. So it's a very personal story and very well written. And I, one I'd recommend, never better. It's called oh, My okay. Life in Our Times.
0: One for the music people. The there. music fans, or for yeah, you, or you don't even have to have an interest <laughs> in
5: music. Paul Brady, one of our greatest musicians, kind of covering from traditional into into rock and roll. And, you know, one who is, you know, he, the people that are, are referenced in this book as being fans of Paul Brady, like Mark Knopfler, David Crosby, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Bonnie Raitt you know, Paul Muldoon, like serious musicians there and poets. So he's so highly rated and Paul has Tipperary connections with the Hannafans. So uh, again, you know, it's it's a great read for anyone with an interest in music or not, you know, a, a, a great story.
0: OK, another great story, one we're only after seeing a lot of on television. And that's Quinn.
5: Yeah, I suppose a, a bit infamous now at this stage. Sean Quinn's story. This book is was planned for a number of years, but I think because of legal questions, uh, the author held it off. So the author was the the, the, the producer mm-hmm. of the recent or the narrator of the recent mm-hmm. TV um, mm-hmm. series on, on Sean Quinn. And I suppose most people would be familiar with his story. And um, it's it is a bit of an eye opener how this man who started with nothing he was he called himself the dunce, you know, at home, and uh, he started on a with a bit of a uh, small bit of land, and but there was sand and gravel on the land, so that's where he started from. Yeah. And you know, he became Ireland's richest man, and then blew it all. So I mean, I suppose people can make their own decisions on him, but it's an interesting read. And I suppose an eye-opener for anyone. You know, we think these people can never come down to earth, but these things can happen very fast, with, yeah. with, especially when they gamble. The harder to go, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the hard yeah, fall, the hard, hard fall.
0: fall. Uh, would. The television series
5: now affects the sales of that? Um, no, it actually probably helps it. Does yeah, it? Yeah, yeah okay. because people want to maybe read more about it and oftentimes they feel with, with the TV series they can never include everything. Um, so the book, there's more detail in the book. I see there's a quote from Sally
0: Rooney with this the, next book you're y- giving me.
5: Yes, this book has won the Irish Book of the Year. Um, so this is, I suppose, uh, an important book and, and maybe one you would give to a serious reader or somebody who's interested in current affairs. And really, it's about the refugee part of the refugee crisis. This author covers Sally Hayden is her name is the plight of the refugees who are trying to escape Libya. She covers okay, more okay. the Libyan and and how they are abused. They are uh, trafficked. They are it's it's almost it a disturbing, book. A disturbing though. book, but an important book. So, you know, if you were looking for a gift really well written and the detail in it is incredible, I think it would really open your eyes to the the torturous yeah. journeys that these people try yeah. and take just to try and escape the, the lives that they're living in, in their own countries. And it's, it's really, I mean, she she talks about corruption in, in a lot of places and not just in those countries, but in the UN and in, you know, these non-government organisations that it just opens your eyes Next one, I'd say it's a bit of fun. Something a bit lighter, but actually okay. it's it's serious as and well. It's a book yeah. called Courting and the, the the subtitle is Tractor Dates, Makra Babies and Swiping Right in Rural Ireland. So I suppose the whole story in this book is the whole dating scene in rural Ireland, no matter what age. And she's she's covering all types of people, <laughs> young and old. <laughs> And it's it's not kind of like it is quirky and and, uh, entertaining, but it's also sad in ways, you know, people who are coming out and having difficulties coming out because of families Mm -hmm. or their feeling or their or their local village or their local town, you know, whether they feel they can't. And, you know, so it's it's a lovely read, actually. And it's I think an awful lot of people in rural Ireland would be able to relate to this book, you know, and yeah, 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 she goes back to how, you know, matchmaking in the day and and the old ballrooms and the whole thing.
0: And of course, you couldn't,
5: I suppose, not
0: have Alice Taylor. No,
5: Alice Taylor is a kind of a perennial at this time of year. So her new book is The Nana, obviously talking about nanas or grandmothers and and their importance in our lives. And she's talking about her own Nana. And and Alice Taylor is a great writer and, and a very easy style. And I think an awful lot of people maybe of kind of from middle age to older relate very very easily to her, her writing because she talks about things that we're all familiar with and and times past and, and reminiscences and that. So, oh. a, you know, a good gift for anyone. Okay, anyway.
0: Now, you said at the beginning we talk about a few children's books because we're getting to run out of time. No problem. I'm, I'm just looking at the bookshop here, but it's just full of books here It children. is. I suppose
5: it's very hard to, to even pick out uh, a half dozen children's yeah. books. So maybe you talk about them in general, again, for any age child from from, from six months, from three months up. Yeah. You know, often people feel you can't give a book to a baby or an infant, but you can. And they will, you know, they might only hold the book or bite the book or chew the book. But they're looking at pictures and they're noticing shapes and forms. So book, it's so essential start start books with children as early as you can, whether they're in a cot or, you know, or beginning to sit up and, and okay. listen to a story. So there's any amount of books, beautifully produced books, the, the production quality in children's books is just absolutely stunning. One area of children's books that has really taken off in the last couple of years is graphic novels. Graphic novels are like comic book comic, form. Yeah. And I suppose the great thing about them is that they encourage kids who, mightn't be, who might be a bit reluctant to read, uh, you know, mightn't pick up a book, might yeah. want to be out hurling or playing football or yeah. on the phone or on the you know, the Xbox or whatever it is. But these are, they're done in comic book form. And we find that good readers, really strong readers love graphic novels as well. But it also brings on maybe the weaker reader or the reluctant reader. So there's a huge range of graphic novels available now. You know, people will be familiar with Dog Man and Cat Kid and Wimpy Kid and... There's an Irish one uh, called Frankie's World by Aoife Dooley, which is a great book, a great bit of fun. And then even in nonfiction, there's a great new biography of Michael Collins published by O'Brien Press in pictures, in in, in picture, in in comic book form. form, So, you know, you might have a child who's interested in history, but won't read a book, uh, you know, a a chapter book. But this might be a way to get them interested and a lovely production on on Michael. Collins. I could talk to you for the day.
0: But I'm out of time, John. No problem at all, John.
5: I want to thank you ever so much for
0: uh, giving us some of your time. And if anybody really wants a book, and you're particularly in the Thorless area, why not drop into Bookworm? It's well known in the area. And John will fix you up with a book that will definitely be an excellent Christmas present or maybe just a read for yourself. Thanks very much, Jim listeners my next guest this morning is zoe Kavna, who is the chief executive of the national dairy council and i suppose you might think that zoe and i have fallen out we haven't but we haven't been speaking for quite some time and a lot of things are happening on the dairy front and zoe hopefully this morning will bring us all back up to speed as we approach christmas good morning zoe and thanks for joining us
6: Good morning, Jim. Um, Delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners um, with a good news story uh, for Irish dairy. I'm delighted to say that 94% of Munsters' consumers um, are committed to including dairy in their diet. And what's even more encouraging is 84% of them um, are including it because they recognise it's healthy and um, understand its nutritional benefits.
0: Right. Now, down to the years when I'm ever talking about Dairy, and in particular talking to people like yourself with regard to uh, the use of dairy products in the diet, we were always worried that particularly teenagers and young adults weren't consuming enough of dairy every day to look after their bones in later life. Has that improved a bit, Zoe?
6: Well, it's interesting, Jim. Very few foods, as you well know, compared to dairy in terms of their nutritional value. A glass of milk makes a substantial contribution to the recommended intake of several important nutrients. And just to give you an example, 39% of Ireland's calcium intake comes from dairy, and 44% of its iodine intake comes from dairy. And so we know it's highly nutritious, and the dietary guidelines recommend three portions of dairy a day, or up to five, actually, if you're a growing teenager. Just, I have recent data on um, adult performance against that. And actually only 13% are meeting the recommendation of three portions of dairy a day. So I'm mindful we're on the run up to Christmas. I would say to your listeners, just really be conscious of trying to get in the three a day um, in the form of a glass of milk, some cheese in the cheese sandwich or enjoy a nice cheese board um, or a carton of yogurt. Really get in the three portions because there's your calcium, there's your protein, there's your vitamin B12. So you're looking after your bones, you're looking after your muscles you're giving yourself some good energy. And we know also for the um, young teenagers, only 37% of teenage girls are getting the right amount of dairy in their diet at a really critical stage. So our job is not yet done in this space, Jim. We have to really keep educating people on the importance of dairy in the diet. And while there is strong awareness among, as I say, your listeners around the benefit of dairy in the diet, it's just important behaviorally that people really think about how they're getting them in. And breakfast, lunch and dinner present great opportunities. And then for your sports sports, and active listeners, um, there's nothing better than uh, a glass of milk as uh, what we would call a post-recovery drink after um, being active. So plenty of reasons to consume the product. And I think what's really important is also to talk about how responsibly produced um, the production is here in Ireland off a grass-based system. And I know this is a very important theme, you know, agriculture has a big part to play in terms of our commitments, our climate action programme. The sector is now committed to a 25% reduction in emissions by 2030. And that is a journey that the sector is on. Just for your listeners, grass systems uh, are less than half the global average when it comes to emissions. So great starting point, but we have to be 25% better. And actually, I can see from the research again, your listeners, 62% believe that the dairy sector can feed people in a sustainable way. And what we want to demonstrate is the product is responsibly produced and the product is really good in terms of um, uh, contributing to population health. So I'm sure your listeners are seeing action on dairy farms taking place already in the area of grass management, soil management, you know, the low emission slurry spreading multi-species sward there's some really exciting work in in animal genetics and all of these things will contribute to reducing the emissions of agriculture by 25 percent over the next eight years so i think it's a good time for irish dairy and i would like to think that we're going to be a leader off a grass-based system showing how this is a very sustainable and important sector
0: zoe if we wind the clock back we'd say uh, seven to ten years dairy was getting very bad press it doesn't seem to be getting bad press anymore
6: no i i think we actually i think the sector was really challenged on a number of fronts like never before we had a number of things playing out first and foremost the novelty product portfolio of plant based and initially when that was being talked about it was very much Through the consideration of a vegan diet, you know, which is Mm -hmm. a diet less than three percent of the population pursue. It's an extremely difficult diet, but it that that's that's people's choice. But that that was, you know, a big area of discussion. And in fact, we've moved on a lot from that debate because uh, I think people recognise now a healthy diet, everything in moderation. The balance now is much about the nutrients you're taking in. As also how it's produced, you know, food from nature produced in a balanced way, with a balanced sort of approach to consuming your calories. So I think the sector has navigated that challenge well, and I think you know the challenge it's also dealing with at the moment, you know, is the environmental challenge, and the sector I think will be proven to be a very much a leader in its response because. Dairy farmers are taking the environmental considerations very seriously and they know that there's work to be done in the area of water, in the area of biodiversity, in the area of emissions, in the area of, you know, animal care, in the area of land management. We will be we will be judged on our results. Um, but I, the knee jerk negativity or questioning around dairy has definitely eased. And at the end of the day, you know, peace of mind comes with knowledge to so give people the facts. Give them the nutrition facts, give them the production facts, give them the environmental facts, and then at the end of the day consumers are free to, you know, choose a variety of products to put into their basket. But I think the sector is in good shape.
0: One last question to you this morning, and it's got to do with the uh, consumer. As you know, if you walk into any supermarket today, the cost of dairy produce are Project that has dairy in it has gone up considerably and will the consumer try to go back to some of the alternatives rather than to go out and buy dairy and is that a, a problem we have got to face in the coming months and years
6: uh, it's a really timely question jim because i was just looking at cso data with mm-hmm. an agri-economist yesterday and our cost of dairy products To the consumer is at an equivalent level to um 2011. so in other words when you account for um inflation we're at an equivalent level to 2011. and the the journey dairy has gone on for a long period of time there were no price increases certainly in the fresh milk market and now we've had a significant level of price increases and i'd almost distill those into two two forms One, simply down to the inflation associated with the input costs for a dairy farming family to produce dairy. And for them to stay, you know, in in business, uh, those input costs needed to be recognised at the point of purchase by the consumer. But the second aspect is for almost 20 years, um, milk price on shelf was static. And that was a really big issue, certainly for us in the National Dairy Council, to see such a highly nutritious product produced off grass in such a a high quality manner to be cheaper than water on shelf. So now we've got to a situation where yes, it has become more expensive, but it is still very much a product that falls into the affordable nutrition category. It is money exceptionally well spent in terms of what it gives um, nutritionally to, to families all around Ireland. So I think We need to be careful here in Ireland to ensure that our producer is fairly rewarded for the product that's produced and the consumer is paying a fair price for a product portfolio that provides so much good nutrition. So I think there has been an adjustment. It is justified, but interesting enough, from an inflationary point of view, we are just back at 2011 levels.
0: Okay. well, looking for this morning, we'd leave it there. I want to wish you and all your team at the National Dairy Council a very happy Christmas and a prosperous New Year. That, listeners, was Zoe Kavna, the Chief Executive of the National Dairy Council. Thank you all for listening. And before I sign off, may I wish you all a very happy Christmas. There will be no show next week, but I will be back on New Year's Eve on Tomorrow evening in Ballycal Church, the Ballycal Choir will have a carol service in aid of local charities. And I'm signing off now with one of the hymns they will be singing tomorrow evening.